Confession. As we have seen, Muhammad declared in contradiction to St. Paul's declaration, he is a Jew, which is one outwardly, Romans 2.29, that he is a Muslim who is one outwardly. His concept of Allah supposedly made God sovereign and ultimate, but by defining religion as outward conformity, God was barred from the center of creation, the mind and the heart of man. Man, the king of creation, was left free to think and act as he pleased, provided that outward assent to a few simple duties prescribed by the Quran was followed. Muhammad ensured the congenital stagnation of the Muslim world as far as true growth was concerned by eliminating from God's total government the mind and heart of man. The restlessness of the Orthodox Christian, and especially the Puritan, with the status quo and his continual desire to improve himself and his world and his delight in growth is lacking in the Muslim who sees all outward things as fate and is content to leave things inward alone. The inwardness of biblical faith reveals itself not only in the requirements of God for man's heart, but in the doctrine of confession. Two verbs in the New Testament are translated as confess, homologeo, to speak the same thing, to confess or agree with, and exomologeo, to confess forth, to acknowledge publicly, an intensive form of the other verb. The noun, homologia, means confession or acknowledgement of the truth. Its usage in the New Testament is both with reference to the confession of guilt and the joyful confession of Christ and of faith. We shall return to the meaning of confession in the New Testament later. Confession is a necessary aspect of man's psychology and nature. Man was created by God to be a confessing creature, to confess God in all his activities, research, study, and science. In every area, man makes a religious confession in all that he does and is. Man's life is a confession before the world of the faith and purpose which govern his heart. Man's life is also a continual confession before God and to God. Every thought and motive of man is naked and open before God. This is a joy to the godly man, in that he is never alone. The hopes and wishes he dares not reveal to man he knows God sees, understands, and either approves or prospers. Instead of a fear of a prying God, the godly man has the assurance that, however much alone he may be among men, There is not a lonely thought in all his life as he stands before God. The perfect wisdom, understanding, mercy, and grace of God form the environment of his every thought and impulse. The godly man thus flourishes in his confession. To confess his sins to God brings him grace and renewed strength. To confess Christ before men by his godly life and witness is the motive force of his life and calling. For the unregenerate, the God of Scripture is a prying God who must be barred from the mind of man. His resentment against such sovereign power is intense. His thoughts are his totally private property, and he will not allow to God title over a single thought. In his imagination, the sinner plays God. He peoples a universe with his fancies, executes men for every real or fancied insult, or exacts ugly and humiliating vengeance on them, makes himself the center of all love, sex, and authority, and then quarrels with the real world of God because it neither bows down to him nor conforms to his imagination. The sinner refuses to confess his sins to God and to acknowledge his guilt, and he refuses to confess Christ in his daily life and motives. But he does not thereby escape the need for confession. Where men refuse to make a godly confession, they will make an ungodly one. They will confess with their lives, in word, thought, and deed, their rebellion against God, and they will confess with their mouth their sins, whether in bravado or in spite of themselves. The popularity of psychoanalysis and psychiatry rests in part in its ability to provide for confession on humanistic terms. There is less healing or recovery among patients of psychoanalysts and psychiatrists than among those who avoid treatment. 
Treatment, thus, is an impediment to recovery, but this does not discourage people from resorting to such practitioners. The need for a father-confessor overrides practical considerations, but such confessions are without healing or grace. Confession of sins has become a more important part of life in the 20th century than for a few centuries past, but the confession is humanistic and thus futile. The humanistic confession is an evasion of guilt. The significance and importance of confession for humanism appears very clearly in the group sex circles. These groups hold to a relativistic philosophy and an emphasis on experience. Their perspective is summed up in the statement, don't ever knock anything unless you've tried it. The moral premise of group sex is in the sharing of guilt by confession. Group sex has supplanted wife swapping. Instead of mutual private adultery, the group sex cultists practice their rights openly and in the same room. Husband and wife then later confess to one another their every act and thought. This sharing is seen as moral. Mutual guilt means no one can cast the first stone. By mutual confession, after mutual guilt, each feels cleansed and free, supposedly. The marital partners each play God and give mutual absolution. The results, instead of cleansing, is the burning out St. Paul described in Romans 1, 18-32. The group sex cultists move on rapidly to perversions, to homosexuality, sodomy, bestiality, incest, and whatever else their minds can devise. Having forsaken God, they derive their vitality from sin, and it takes continually fresh and intensified sin to revitalize them. Their confession is indeed of sin, not as guilt, but as achievement. The guilt is there, but also an exultation in having transgressed another time, another moral boundary. Because of this urge to confession, both because of guilt and because of pride, the sinner cannot avoid confessing his sin to someone. Just as the covenant man confesses his sins to God and confesses Christ before men, so the covenant breaker must also confess both his guilt and his faith, and the two are one, sin. It is for this reason that the most easy and the most common form of apprehending criminals is by means of informers. The urge to confess is strong in criminals, and some have been known to drop their cards or identifying data at the scene of a clever theft or crime. Every man's life is a long confession. The important fact is, what is he confessing? Our Lord declared, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess in me before men, I will also confess in him before my Father, who is in the heavens. And whoever shall deny me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in the heavens. Matthew 10, 32-33, Robert Young, Literal Translation of the Holy Bible. The meaning is that whoever confesses Christ before men in the things concerning his kingdom and word, Christ will confess that man before God in the things pertaining to his case. Thus, the two meanings of confession are tied together. Men are to confess Christ before men in word, thought, and deed. Their lives and work must set forth Christ in his kingdom. It is Christ whom they must represent before men. When men are faithful in confessing Christ, Christ is faithful in confessing them before God. He intercedes for them in their confession of sins, and he summons God's prospering hand upon them for their faithful confession of Christ's name, kingdom, and saving power. As man sets forth the claims of Christ before men, so Christ sets forth the cause of man before God. This is the fullness of confession. Another aspect of confession is confession of sins to men. This is an important aspect, but dangerous when overstressed. Our confession of sins is primarily to God, because it is against God essentially that we sin. As David said, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. Psalm 51.4 Confession of sins is sometimes a necessary aspect of restitution. 
but it can also be a further sin in many cases. One literal-minded and malevolent woman made a great show of piety by her ready confessions. She would say, Please forgive me, my dear, but I said something very unkind about you to Jane yesterday, and I am deeply ashamed of myself. Or, My dear, I am so ashamed of myself, but I listened to Betty say some nasty things about you last night, and I kept quiet. Please forgive me. What she maliciously accomplished in the name of faith was to slander people to their faces, repeat to them what they would never otherwise hear, and then require them to prove their faith in charity by forgiving her. Sin, in such cases, masquerades as faith. The same is often true of adulterous men who insist on telling their unsuspecting wives of past adulteries with a great show of contrition and repentance. Such confessions manifest a pseudo-piety, used as a form of absolution and as a license to sin. Anne Landers, in her column, reported such a case. Dear Anne, my husband has been unfaithful three times that I know of. His first playmate confessed by telephone. I had no idea who she was. I'd never heard of her and was shocked. The second blow came when my husband sobbed out the details of a torrid affair after we had seen a very touching movie together. The third woman showed up at my home and said she wanted me to know what kind of man I was married to. I nearly collapsed. Dumb? Yes, but true. Knowing didn't help. Why did these people tell me? Ignorant wife. Dear wife, because they needed to unload and they didn't care who was hurt. Anne Lander's comment is to the point. For the humanist, absolution and virtue are too often in the fact of confession itself, not in a change of heart and restitution. The adulterous husband felt greatly relieved after his confession, as though his act as a virtue canceled out his sin. Such confession has as its goal the satisfaction of human goals, whereas godly confession is Christocentric. Man confesses his Lord before men, maintaining an open and confessing heart before Christ, who in turn confesses man before God the Father. The verb confess, eximolageo, is translated also as praise or thank, in Luke 10.21, when our Lord declared, I thank or praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. Praise, celebration, and gratitude are basic aspects of confession. Men not only confess their faith and their sins, they also confess their values and rejoice in their thoughts, actions, hopes, and calling by their confession. A man confesses that which he delights in by the totality of his life, by his every word, thought, and deed.